Good morning. Uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel, Yukuni. It's great to be here with you all. I worship the Lord. Uh, we're, well, let's go ahead and uh, dismiss our elementary age children first and foremost and let them get to the, the, their classrooms. Hey, Joe, there's some, one of the instruments or something, maybe something's still on. There's some feedback coming through. There you go. That's better. Whatever that was. Good job. Uh, I trust you all had a, a blessed Christmas. Uh, really enjoyed meeting with uh, many of you on Christmas Eve here uh, as we were able to just have a special service, a short one, but uh, hopefully one that was just uh, memorable for you. You know, I was blessed, encouraged, blessed and encouraged to see so many of you uh, here, uh, making it a priority to come and worship the Lord and reflect upon uh, the true meaning of Christmas. Um, and the fact that God the Father gave to us the perfect gift uh, uh, that we could ever ask for or hope to have uh, a Savior. And so uh, just a great time on uh, Wednesday night uh, meeting with you guys. And um, you know, hopefully the next day, Thursday, was the blessed day. You got uh, everything that you were hoping for underneath the Christmas tree and uh, had a good time with the family. Uh, and also just were able to take some time to reflect upon the Lord's goodness and His blessings uh, throughout the year. I want to uh, make just a quick plug uh, for our New Year's Eve Soup Potluck Fellowship. Um, this is actually a tradition that uh, I used to do, uh, was part of what um, I did, we, we did in Okinawa before we got here. And so when I got here, I was like, hey, do you guys do something for New Year's? And I'm like, not really. I said, no, you got to do this. It's so much fun. So uh, it's, it's a soup potluck. So you bring a hot soup. And usually what we'll do is we'll have some tables set up and we'll have some electrical cords running out there. So if you have a crock pot, you can plug it in and keep it warm uh, through the night. And then we just we, we set up a bunch of different tables and everybody brings their favorite board games. And we just start sharing games and teaching people how to play our games and, and have a good time learning other people's games and having a, a fun night. And so uh, I want to encourage you guys to, to come out. Uh, a great time of fun and fellowship, a, a safe place to ring in the new year uh, with your family and with the church uh, family and your friends. And so I want to encourage you to make it out. It's going to start at 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, obviously, we're going to grow into um, the new year, and so it'll be a late night. Uh, if you can't stay the whole night, uh, I understand. You know, I, I, I have a little one, and Farrah and I are already talking, like, okay, are we going to you know, tag team this? Maybe you'll go home early with the, the baby. or You know, I understand all that kind of stuff. And so if you can only come for maybe a couple hours, come for a couple hours. Uh, enjoy the fellowship. It's a great time to uh, get to know people. I think uh, when you sit down at a game table with people, you get to see their, a little bit of their true character. And so uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Hopefully you guys don't hold anything against me because I like games. <laughs> All right. Um, so that's Wednesday night. Hopefully you guys can make it out. Uh, for today, we're going to resume our study of the book of Matthew. Uh, I was actually thinking about doing a special uh, New Year's message. Uh, but in, in all reality, I just really wanted to uh, just continue studying through Matthew. I, uh, the betrayal... Uh, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, the resurrection. We are getting into just like some really great portions of Scripture. I'm excited to be studying through it. Hopefully you're just as excited to be going through it uh, together as a body. And so we're going to just pick up uh, right where we last, last left off. Uh, we're going to be uh, back in chapter 26 this morning. Uh, you may be thinking to yourself, man, we've been in Matthew chapter 26 for a long time now. And, and we kind of have been uh, in Matthew 26 for a while. That would be a correct uh, 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 
conclusion. Uh, but it is a long chapter. In fact, it's the longest chapter of all the gospel uh, book of Matthew. And so it's a long chapter. It's 70 plus verses. And so it's taken us a little bit. Um, I hope to finish up the chapter next week uh, while covering the trial of Jesus and Peter's denial. But I'm not going to make any promises. That might be two messages. We'll just see how the Lord leads. But uh, uh, be reading ahead. You know, my desire and one of the blessings of being able to just systematically go through the Word of God is that you guys can read ahead and you'll know where we're going to be at. You can read it. You can pray and ask God to show you what he's saying, what he wants to say to you. And that way when we come together, uh, it's not a a new revelation, but it's a confirmation of what God has already been speaking to you. So I do want to encourage you guys, be reading ahead. Okay, uh, reading through uh, Matthew 26, and we'll be getting into 27 in the next uh, few weeks as well. Okay? All right. For today, though, uh, we're going to be looking at Judas's betrayal uh, found in verses 47 through 56. Uh, If you have your Bible with you, you go ahead and start making your way there if you haven't already. Uh, If you forgot your Bible, uh, maybe left home without it, left it on the table. I know that happens uh, uh, oftentimes. It's happened to me before, I know. Uh, But underneath our chairs are some Bibles. So if you need a Bible, just reach down underneath your chair. You should be able to grab one. Uh, I do think it's important you're able to follow along. Uh, as we go through the Word of God. Okay? All right. All right. Matthew chapter 26, excuse me, chapter 26, covering verses 47 through 56. Uh, Will you please stand in honor of God's Word as we read through our opening, our, our text this morning. Matthew 26, verse 47. It says, Matthew writes, he says, And while he was still speaking, uh, speaking of Jesus, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priest and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, Why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is, is active, it's living. Lord, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it can divide uh, between thoughts and intents, uh, uh, divide down to the very uh, bone and, and marrow of uh, just getting into the very heart of things. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would allow your word to do such a work in our lives this morning. Lord, that you would uh, do heart surgery uh, upon us. Lord, with uh, the Word. Lord, that you would uh, show us where we uh, 
have maybe some unhealthy things going on and, and uh, encourage us when we have some things going uh, right. Lord, I pray that you would uh, minister to each and every one of us. Lord, I know that we come with different cares and different uh, just things that are coming in the week to come or just stresses from this last week. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to lay those things aside at this time and just spend time in your presence, allowing your word to mold and shape us in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. Last we left off, uh, obviously last week we had our, our Christmas message, but uh, prior to that, we left off, Jesus had been praying with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, or at least that's what the disciples were supposed to be doing. Uh, recall that Jesus had asked the disciples to watch and pray with him, lest they enter into temptation, for the Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And if you were with us, you'll remember that the disciples, they failed to pray, and instead they fail pray to their flesh. They could not watch and pray. Their eyes were too heavy, and they were fast asleep each time Jesus came back to check in on them. After the third time of coming back to the disciples and seeing them fast asleep, uh, he awoke them and informed them that it was time to rise and get going for his betrayer was at hand. And that's where we pick up in verse 47. While he was still speaking, uh, still speaking the words to his disciples to get up, you know, the Judas was coming. It tells us that Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude of swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Interesting here, Judas is identified here uh, by Matthew as one of the twelve. Judas Iscariot uh, was one of the twelve hand-selected disciples Jesus picked to join with him during his three years of earthly ministry. To be part of the twelve was quite an honor. Judas was privy to a number of, of private teachings of Jesus, where he would explain to his disciples the interpretation and the application of some of his parables and some of the more difficult teachings that he had. He would have been able to see with his own eyes the many miracles that people around the land would be talking about and hope to one day see for themselves. He would have been sent out with the others with power to heal the sick, and to cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. To preach the coming kingdom of heaven. He was given really every opportunity to succeed as Jesus would pray specifically over each of the twelve disciples. Judas was one of the guys. He was one of the twelve. He was part of a very special group of guys. Guys that ministered side by side with the Lord for three years. Even more so, 
Judas was a, a man that was trusted by his companions. He was trusted uh, with the overall finances that helped to buy food and supplies for their travels and ministry. He was the one in charge of keeping uh, the money box. And so even above the, the fact that he was one of the twelve, recounted amongst one of the twelve, he was even given special favor and special responsibilities. And yet we know from our previous studies that Judas was actually stealing from the money box that he was entrusted to keep. And so as I look at this and as we look at this, it makes me just consider what happened to this man. He was one of the twelve, but he gave it all up. He gave it all up for a little bit of extra coinage, greed got the best of him and seized, uh, he seized an opportunity to cash in on Jesus. He proved by his actions that he never really was part of the group. Even though he was mentioned as one of the twelve, he was in the group, but he was really not of the group, if that makes any sense. How we can be in the world, but not of the world. Judas, we could say he was in the group of twelve, but he really wasn't of the group there. He walked with the Lord. He talked with the Lord. Uh, He was part of that core group of disciples that traveled all over the land, preaching and teaching and performing miracles. He saw things with his eyes, and he knew things in his mind, but his heart was untouched. His heart was unmoved. Unfortunately, I know of firsthand people who I've served side by side with. And right alongside with and who who seemed to be walking with the Lord and talked with the Lord and seemed to just be right there. One of the guys, one of the groups, and yet to come to find out that they really never were walking with the Lord. They they were just playing games and they were just kind of going through the motions. And and to me, as I look at this, Judas is is a little bit of a it's a reminder. uh, It's a little bit of a scary reminder Uh, For us, that we need to take our walk with the Lord serious. Uh, We we can't just go through the motions and and speak the lingo and, and look the part. We need to know Christ and love Christ. We need to have a lasting, impactful relationship with the Lord. One that is intimate. One that's growing each day. Jesus, or excuse me, Judas... It's my understanding, and it's my uh, belief, that Judas, Judas didn't just all of a sudden, one day, decide that he was going to betray the Lord. It wasn't like he's walking with the Lord, and he's doing ministry, and it's all great, and then the next day he's like, you know what, I think I'm going to turn on the Lord. I'm going to cash in on him for 30 pieces of silver. I suggest to you, and I imagine it was a slow fade away from Jesus, that ultimately, after three years, led him to churning on him. He probably was just as excited as the others at first by being hand-selected by Jesus to come with him. But as time went on, he obviously became less and less passionate about Christ. And through time became so distant from the Lord that turning against him didn't even seem to be that big of a deal to him. And I, as I consider this life, this man's life, all I can do is really hope and pray that none of us are playing the part of Judas. 
Okay, that none of you are, are, are playing the foolish part of Judas in your walk with the Lord. I, I hope that we don't have any pretenders here. You know, I hope that we don't have any phonies here who are just going through the motions and, and letting things kind of play out as they may uh, and just see where this thing takes me. You know, I'm, I'm along for the ride as long as it's good, but if it gets bumpy or I don't like it, I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah, I hope we don't have anybody here this morning that would be able to identify with Judas and say, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I, I, I hope and pray that that's, not, that's, that's none of us. But unfortunately, as we look and we see in the church even today, and as you could probably attest in your own life, that, that there are people in the church that are like that. There are people in the church, just like Judas, who are just playing the part and they're pretending. And so we need to take our walk with the Lord serious. We need to make sure our walk with the Lord is growing, that it's, it's uh, strengthened and, and just continuing on. We need to take our relationship with Him serious. We need to spend time with Him, growing closer and closer to Him as we travel through life. Judas was one of the twelve. But here we see him leading a multitude coming against the Lord. This multitude, uh, although we are not given specific numbers, it is a very large group of people. In fact, in John's Gospel, if you read, uh, actually, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the betrayal uh, uh, of of Judas. Uh, And in John's Gospel, he describes the multitude as a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees in John 18.3. Now, the word used for a detachment of troops is spoken of in connection to a cohort of Roman foot soldiers okay, that could normally number between four and 600 individuals. Okay, And I'm not saying that there was four or 600 people, but we can't... Uh, we can imagine a very significant group of people. Okay? This isn't just you know, 20 or 30 guys that kind of came to, to... This is a large multitude of people. Okay? Um, this great multitude is also armed and presumably dangerous. They had with them swords and clubs. They came either expecting a fight or ready to start a fight if needed. Judas and the multitude had been sent out by the chief priests and elders. Recall that the chief priests and elders were supposed to be those that were servants of the Lord. They were meant to be the, those who were representations of the Lord. Uh, men that were used by God to lead others in spiritual matters. A group of men entrusted uh, with a great responsibility, uh, a connection to the Lord. But they too were phonies. Just like Judas. Judas. These religious leaders, all they really cared about was riches, power, and influence, and keeping hold of their riches, power, and influences. These religious elite were tired of losing their power and influence to Jesus, and they were going to stop at nothing until they were rid of him. Verse 48 and 49, it says, Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Reading these details about having a way of identifying Jesus really makes me wonder a little bit about Jesus. You know, uh, most, most paintings and renditions of Jesus Christ 
uh, portray him in such a, a manner as to make him stand out um, amongst the crowd and amongst the group. Uh, most paintings and renditions of Jesus uh, Christ portray him in such a manner as uh, just uh, the one with you know the straight, shiny, clean hair and like a perfect beard, like kind of beard. I wish I had. That it's, I'm working on it. But he would have this just perfect, beautiful beard, all great and hair nice and clean, and uh, usually. Uh, some sort of aura about him, uh, maybe a glowing that beams from him. Uh, some even go as far as to portray him with a sort of halo over his head as he walked the earth. But according to the scripture, uh, you know, and reading from this scripture, I'm enticed to believe that Jesus may have looked just like everyone else. Okay? Uh, in fact, Isaiah described the Messiah as not having any form of comeliness nor any beauty that we should desire him. In Isaiah 53, verse 2. And it would seem that Jesus uh, didn't have any outstanding features that distinguished him from the others in regards to his appearance. Uh, you know, what, what other reason would there be for uh, an identifying kiss if, if he was the guy with the aura around him or the guy with the halo or the guy that was all cleanly looking while everybody else had looked all dirty? It would be easy to know and, and say, oh, there, there's Jesus right there. But he blended in. He needed something to help identify him. And so uh, just an idea. We don't know what he looked like. We do know that he had a beard because they plucked a beard. They plucked the hair from his beard during the crucifixion. And so other than that, we don't know much more about what he looked like. Okay? The means for identifying Jesus was going to be a kiss. It was customary in that day to greet one another with a, cat, uh, with a kiss. In fact, uh, I've never been there, but I was reading up in many Middle Eastern countries today. It's still a custom that can be witnessed. Uh, men would greet each other with a kiss uh, on the cheek. Uh, very normal. Like I think for, for maybe most of us, we think that's weird. Uh, but not during that time. Uh, even uh, Southern Europe and Eastern Europe today, the greedy men will greet each other with a kiss as well. And so uh, this was a, a common custom. Uh, part of their, their tradition is a sign of affection. It was a sign of respect and, uh, and actually a sign of closeness. And for Judas to approach Jesus and give him a kiss would be something that he's done, no doubt, many times before. Judas told them to seize Jesus after he identified him. The, the King James Version reads uh, that he, they, Judas wanted him to hold him fast. Uh, the idea here is that Judas wanted them to act swiftly, to come upon him quickly. Uh, we're not sure why, as to why that is. Perhaps they was a, there was a fear that uh, Jesus would get away, and so they needed to act swiftly, act with haste. Uh, we do know that from other portions of Scripture that Jesus was easily uh, able to slip away into the crowd. Oftentimes when they'd come upon him, he was able to just mingle right into the crowd and disappear and not be found. And so perhaps that is why they needed Judas to quickly identify him with a kiss so that he wouldn't be able to escape. As soon as Judas approached Jesus, we're told that he immediately greeted and kissed him. And it would seem that Judas wanted this to be done and over with as soon as possible. He didn't waste any time. When he greeted Jesus, the word in the original Greek, Greek indicates rejoicing and gladness. 
The greeting implied here uh, is a heart of joy, and it's actually, actually often translated as joy to thee, that word greetings. Joy to thee, Rabbi. As I was studying that, and I came across that, I was just a little bit churned in my stomach just to think that Judas, doing what he is doing and, and about to do, betraying the Lord, uh, to just be able to come right up to Jesus and say, Joy to thee, Rabbi, uh, with joy. Uh, how It just makes me wonder how cold-hearted he could be. We do know that at this time, it was after he had left and departed that Jesus entered into him, so I can't help but believe this is just the devil working in and through Judas at this time. And it's the devil that's smiling and saying, Joy to thee, I got you crucifixion, you're going to get, I'm getting rid of you right here, right now. The fact that Judas continued to identify uh, Jesus as merely a rabbi also uh, shows to us that he never looked upon Jesus as anything more than a religious teacher. You guys may recall, remember when we were studying the Last Supper, when Jesus, uh, before, when he was having uh, the Passover meal, before he instituted the Last Supper, uh, Jesus announced to his disciples that one of them was going to betray him. And if you recall, all of the disciples, uh, they started saying, Lord, is it I? Okay. Chapter 26, verse 22. Okay. Referring uh, to Jesus as their Lord. And all but Judas, that is. If you recall what Judas said, Judas said, Rabbi, is it I? To which Jesus said, yes, it is. Judas did not accept Jesus as Lord in his life. He was simply a religious teacher of the day that he had grown distant from and was ready to cut ties with him. Very sad. Verse 50, first part of verse 50 says, But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? This response of Jesus is one that uh, interests me greatly. As I was studying through it, I spent a lot of time actually looking at this one verse. Uh, in the King James Version, and the New King James Version, the wording is put together in the form of a question. Uh, but if you're reading uh, from uh, the NIV or perhaps the ESV, NASB, uh, those versions, they put forth in the form of a statement. Uh, my translation, uh, the New King James reads, friend, why have you come? The NIV reads, friend, do what you came for. Now, it's important, just as a side note, to realize that New Testament Greek did not use punctuation marks. Okay? Uh, it didn't even use spacing between words. Uh, it would just be a, a, a constant flow of characters. And those that were uh, fluent in... in uh, New Testament, first century Greek, would easily be able to understand by the context, context where the pauses were, where questions were made, where statements were made, and, and that sort of thing. And so uh, I thought, no way. But then I was studying online, and it had this like whole thing. I could read it, and it had like no spaces and no punctuation. I could totally understand what it was saying. It was in English. And I thought, okay, well, if I can understand it in English, they could probably understand it in their own language, where it would go. Uh, so we can't be for certain if this was meant to be a question or a statement. If it were a question, it was not meant to indicate Jesus was unaware of what was going on. Okay? 
We know that he knew what was going on, right? He just told the disciples, it's time to get up because my betrayer is at hand. My hour has come. He knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly why Judas had come. He had come to betray him. And so when Jesus asked the question, why have you come? It's not because he's seeking information, but rather trying to get Judas to consider how this situation even came to be. Why are you betraying me? What happened that caused you to turn against me? That sort of thing. That's the idea behind this questioning. He's not saying, hey, what are you doing here, Judas? I had no idea where you were coming tonight. He knows exactly what's going on. He wants Judas to think about what's going on. Okay? This is something that is used in the Bible and other portions of Scripture. Back in the book of Genesis, when God called out to Adam saying, Where are you? You guys remember that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9? Uh, God knew full well where Adam was at. Okay? Adam was hiding because he had done something he wasn't supposed to have done. Okay? He, he ate and he took from the, the, the fruit where he wasn't supposed to eat. And he realized he was naked and he was hiding. God wasn't wondering where he was. He was wanting Adam to consider how he got into the situation to begin with. And we do that too, right? Uh, moms and, and dads. Okay, have you ever asked your kids, why are there food crumbs all over the couch? Okay, or all over the, the, the floor? Okay? You're not asking because you don't know how food crumbs got onto the couch. Okay? You, you know why. It's because someone was eating food on the couch, right? What you're really asking is, why were you eating on the couch in the first place? How did this get here in the first place? You know you're not supposed to be eating here, unless you are okay with that, you know, and it's no big deal. You wouldn't have mind maybe food on the couch. But we do that, right? We ask those questions. We know the answer to We're not trying to find out information. We're trying to get them to think of the process in which the outcome that they found themselves in, the situation that they found themselves in. Okay? How did this come to be? If this was meant to be a question, then no doubt it was meant to as a means to get Judas to think of his own actions that had led him to this scenario. If this were meant as a statement, I, I think it's really simple then. Uh, then we see here a, a simple acknowledgement by Jesus showing that he was full aware of Judas's intent. And he says, do what you've come to do. You know, basically, I know what you're here to do. You know, I'm allowing you to do it, basically. I'm going to let you go through with it. Do what you've come to do. I, I find this verse interesting for the word that Jesus used to identify Judas. Jesus referred to Judas as friend. Okay? Now, I did a word study on that word friend. And, and, and some, you know, they look at this... Uh, this verse, this word specifically, and they point out the, the love that the, the Lord had for Judas, even in the midst of his betrayal. That Judas, excuse me, that Jesus still loved Judas and counted him as a friend, despite what he was doing. And, and they look at this as one of, uh, just a last opportunity that the Lord was giving to Judas to stop what he was doing and to turn from his ways 
Okay? And that's possible. That could be what is meant by that. I'm not saying it's not. Okay? But as I was studying it, I was led to another possibility. Okay? Uh, you know, as we think of it and consider it that way, we could say, wow, that's, that's incredible. The, the, the grace, the love, the kindness of the Lord that would be able to look at someone who's betraying him and knowing the, the sorrow that he just went through because knowing that what he was going to do and still be able to refer to that person as friend. I think if you or I were there, we probably would not use the word friend when he came and approached us. We might have some other choice words for him. Okay? Now, but it's interesting because the word friend that Jesus used here is the Greek, uh, in the Greek, it is a peculiar word. Okay? It is the Greek word etaide. And it is only used four times in all of the New Testament. Okay? The word friend is used well over 30 times. You can find the word friend uh, spoken in the New Testament uh, many times. Okay? But most of the time, the Greek word uh, Philos is used. Okay? Um, the meaning of this noun, philos, is rooted in the corresponding verb phileo, which means to love or to befriend, to appropriate another person's interest unselfishly. We use it in words today like Philadelphia, where we call it the city of brotherly love. And so that philos is that, that brotherly love. Okay, that love that you have for someone else, uh, the, a love that's willing to put the interest of someone else before uh, your own, that's philos, that's friend in the, in the Greek. Okay? Many times Jesus used the word philos to describe a friend. Jesus described Lazarus as a friend using philos in, in John 11, verse 11. He spoke of the disciples as friends using the same word in Luke chapter 12 verse 4. And later on again in John chapter 15 verse 15 when Jesus said, No longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends. Philos. For all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. But here... He does not use the word philos to address Judas, but rather the word etairos or etaire. Um, as I mentioned, the word etairos is only used four times in the New Testament. Here and in three other places, each time it's used, it's actually spoken by Jesus himself. And so I want to look at these three different times so that we might understand, based upon the context, what this word translated in English as friend meant. In the Greek. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 16 is the first use of this word, etidos. Jesus said, But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions. That word companions uh, in the New King James Version is actually uh, in the original Greek, etidos. Jesus purposefully did not call these companions philos. Because if they truly were friends that would have acted, uh, they would have acted in agreement with the others. They would have rejoiced with them when they played their musical instruments, and they would have lamented with them when they mourned. Okay, Matthew 11, uh, 16, it's talking about how the children, they played their flute, but they would not dance for them. They mourned, but uh, they would not lament. They, they would not 
reciprocate the feelings that they were expressing. Now these companions, these etidos, in spite of hearing the notes of joy, would not rejoice. They were obstinate. They did not care whether their companions rejoiced or lamented. They only cared about themselves and seeking their own interest and benefit. The second time that this word is used is in Matthew chapter 20, verse 13. Jesus referred to the hired worker that was upset with his wages that he had contracted for as a friend, a tyros. This hired laborer, you guys recall we went through this portion of Scripture together, uh, he represents those who will not go out to work for the Lord in his vineyard unless they have a signed contract detailing their wages to be given by the Lord. And, And when the contracted worker saw the generosity of the householder, of the master of the vineyard, and paying for those that did not demand a contract, but trusted in the master to pay a fair wage, he was indignant. He was outraged. He was very, very upset. And it was based upon this man's reaction of anger and accusation that the master was unjust, that he turned and identified this man as a a Tyros friend. And the only other instance of this word being used is when Jesus used it in this parable of the marriage feast in Matthew chapter 22, verse 12. The person who entered the banquet hall without the accepted dress. You guys remember that, that portion of scripture? We went through that. Okay. The, the invitation went out, you know, and, and anybody could come. And there was people that come. They were supposed to dress appropriately, though. And there was someone in there that didn't have the appropriate dress on. And the person who entered the banquet hall without the accepted dress was called Etairos. He was rebuked by the king for having pretended to have the right to be there when he did not. This friend, Etairos, was thus punished by the king. He was ordered to be bound hand and foot, taken away, and cast into outer darkness. There is a definite distinction between the two Greek words of philos and etairos. Okay? Okay? In the original Greek, it's easy to see as we understand the context, we look at these, but unfortunately the English language uses only one word for both meanings and calls it friend. And so when we read it, we can say, oh, friend, why have you come? Philos, you know, close companion that, that I, you know, I love and I wish you would just stop what you're doing and turn and give you one more opportunity. And that's, that's possible. But as I look at the other uses of this word, etairos, I come to a different conclusion. Etairos is never used, the, the three other times it's used, it's never used favorably. To describe someone. In fact, it would seem that the proper understanding of such a person would be one that seeks his own interest above the interest of others, a selfish acquaintance where the good of others is acceptable only when it promotes his own well-being. My word study dictionary describes Etairos as a person who attaches himself to another for what he can get out of him, a leech or a phony friend. He's ever had a phony friend before, or you know someone that's kind of phony, you know, maybe a leech. They're just, you know that they're only in the relationship for what they can get out of it, and as soon as they're done, they're just going to bail on you. That's a tyros. 
Perhaps it is with this meaning that Jesus addresses Judas. I believe it is. As a person who attaches himself to another only for what he can get out of it. And I believe that it's very possible that Jesus was not giving Judas one last chance to repent, but that he was rightly discerning Judas' true character and identifying him as a phony that was only in it for his own self-interest. And and I think as we look at that, I think we would agree that that aptly describes Judas. He was stealing from the the money pot. He was doing his own thing, right? He started to say, hey, why did we... Why did we not sell that alabaster oil, that spikenard that was used to worship the Lord? We could have, we could have given the money to the poor, but we, he wanted the money to put it in the box so that he could take from it. He was getting what he could out of this relationship. And he was going to make the most of it. And, and as we look at Jesus' question, Friend, why have you come? I can't ignore the obvious application for us to ask the same question. If Jesus were to ask this question of you, would it be friend philos or would it be friend etairos? Why have you come to the Lord? Are you a friend that loves Him? And puts his will above your own will, his interest above your own? Or are you a friend that's only interested in getting what you can out of the relationship? You want fire insurance and and that's all you really care for. You want to take what you can, get out of it, and, and not be troubled to do things that you don't want to do or act in ways that aren't in your own perceived best interest. Have you come to the Lord as philosophy? Or etairos? Is it all about him and his will or you and your will? Why have you come? I think it's a good question for us to ponder. Again, my hope is that we would all be numbered amongst the philosophers of God. That we'd all be counted as a friend of God. That we would love the Lord and our relationship with Him would be one that is not merely self-seeking, but it is desiring of seeing His will done on earth as it is in heaven. Why have you come? Let's continue. Verse 50, it says, Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took Him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out His hand and drew His sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off His ear. As they laid hands upon Jesus, one of the disciples drew a sword out and, and struck a man. Okay, uh, we, John tells us that the man's name was Malchus. Okay, slicing off part of his ear. This disciple was either a horrible swordsman or the servant of the high priest had quick reflexes. Or maybe it was a combination of the two. Okay, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that this could have been a whole lot worse had this swordsman been a little bit more on target, or if that servant would have been a little less reflexive or uh, responsive. Matthew doesn't identify this swordsman to us, but John does. And I'm sure that you won't be the least surprised when I tell you that John identifies this swordsman as none other than act now, think later, Peter. That's kind of his, his M.O., right? 
Act now, think later, that's Peter. Peter's the one that's gotten himself into some precarious situations by not properly thinking things through. And this here is no exception. Peter, no doubt, believed he was doing the right thing. Perhaps he was even considering his earlier vehement declaration of faith, that he would never be made to stumble, and that he would die before denying the Lord. Peter was ready to take on the whole detachment of troops, should he have to. In Luke's account of this incident, we actually are told some interesting information. We're told that the disciples asked Jesus if they should do something about what was happening. The disciples saw the troop coming, they laid hands upon him, and they asked. They asked in Luke chapter 22, verse 49, they asked, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? But Peter didn't wait for the Lord to respond and direct him, but rather he impulsively reacted without waiting for any instruction from the Lord. We can't do that. We need to wait upon the Lord. We need to wait for the Lord to lead and guide us before we make rash decisions or take swift action. Peter ran ahead of the Lord. It's, it, it's, it's as simple as that. Instead of waiting on the Lord, he took matters into his own hands. He rushed ahead of the Lord. He trusted in his own flesh to save the day. You know, Peter is certainly not the only one to ever do such a thing. As you go through and read throughout uh, your, your Bible... Uh, you read a number of accounts of people that did the very same thing, of rushing ahead of the Lord and not waiting upon the Lord. Abraham went ahead of the Lord and trusted in his own means to bring about an heir when he took Hagar as a mistress and she begot Ishmael in Genesis chapter 16. Moses, he went ahead of the Lord and tried to save his people through his own intervention, killing an Egyptian that was beating a Hebrew only to have to flee for his life from Pharaoh and escape to Midian where he would stay 40 years. Saul didn't wait for God's prophet Samuel to show up and offer the burnt sacrifices. And so he took matters into his own hand and he offered up the burnt sacrifices and for that he lost his kingdom. What about us? We can easily point fingers at, at, at Abraham and, and Moses and say, man, you guys are so foolish. Why don't you just wait on the Lord? You know? How many of us have been guilty of moving ahead of the Lord and taking matters into our own hands? And here's the thing. We may have the purest of intentions. I don't think Peter's intentions were necessarily bad. Okay? But more often than not, we only end up making a bigger mess of things. We need to learn to wait upon the Lord. We need to learn to, to trust in His plan and in His timing. Let Him work out the details and lead us in His will. Luckily for Peter, Jesus was there to clean up the mess that He created. Although we're not told here, Luke does tell us that Jesus would touch the ear of Malchus, the servant of the priest and bring about a healing. Luke chapter 22, verse 51. And to me, as I read that, I thought just an interesting note, something maybe worth noting is that it's comforting to know that God is able to clean up the big messes that we make. You know, Peter made a big mess. Rushing ahead of the Lord, uh, taking matters into his own hands, but the Lord was there to, to clean up the mess. 
And when we blow it, God is there to help put things back together for us. And to me, that's an encouraging word. Hopefully, maybe an encouraging word for one of you this morning. Verse 52, it says, But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Jesus told Peter to put his sword away. And he gives really to us three reasons why Peter should do that. Three reasons why Peter needs to put the sword away. First off, Jesus told Peter to put the sword away because all who take the sword will perish by the sword. The famous phrase, those that live by the sword die by the sword, it's rooted within this verse. Jesus was warning Peter that using violence would only bring about more violence, and it would bring a violence upon himself. If Peter were to keep swirling that sword around, aimlessly hacking at whatever came in front of him, he certainly would have been cut to pieces by the great multitude of soldiers that were before him. Remember, Peter was a fisherman. He was not a trained swordsman. He was not a trained warrior like the soldiers that were deployed by the chief priests. He wouldn't have lasted long, and and worse yet, he probably would have brought violence upon his fellow disciples as well. And the principle here was that Peter was not to render evil for evil, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verses 17, 18, 19. Tell us about that. Teach us the principle. And, And really, the same principle applies to us as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15 teaches us, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Jesus instructs us to turn the other cheek. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, I had uh, one pastor I was reading, uh, listening to one time. He says, yeah, you're to turn the other. He grew up and he thought, you, you turn the other cheek, and then once you do that, it's, then it's time to get it on. You know, that's how he grew up. Uh, okay, you know, strike me once, turn the other cheek. Okay, now it's time to go. That's not what Jesus was talking about here necessarily, okay? It would appear that even Peter eventually learned this lesson, for he would write about the example that Christ left for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, he says, Peter writes, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Evidently, Peter learned the lesson. That he was not going to take matters in his own hand, but trust things to the Lord. It's a lesson that we all need to learn. The second reason Jesus gave to Peter for putting away his sword was that Jesus didn't need to be defended by Peter. Jesus didn't need Peter's hand or Peter's sword to save the day. And, and I don't want to you know, make you feel bad or belittle anyone here, but God doesn't need us either. God doesn't need us to protect him. Jesus declared that he could pray to the Father and call down more than 12 legions of angels. Okay? A legion in those days consisted of, of, of around 6,000 troops. Okay? And so 12 
legions of angels would be uh, an indication that he could call down some 72,000 angels if he wanted to, to fight for his cause and to take on those before him. According to 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, one angel came down and destroyed 185,000 Assyrians while they were sleeping. Imagine what 72,000 angels could do. And then compare that to Peter's aimlessly hacking of his sword. It's, it's kind of comical to think. The Lord didn't need Peter. And he, he especially didn't need Peter at this time. And I think that's important to note. I think it's worth noting that Jesus referred to the power of prayer. He said that he could pray to the Father and legions of angels could come, would come down. Twelve legions of angels. Here we see Peter. He's willing to, with one sword, take on a small army of men. And yet just a little bit of time ago, he couldn't pray with Jesus for just one hour. He'll take up a sword and, and fight this whole entire detachment of troops. But he couldn't pray one hour. That, that is when Peter could have helped the Lord. That was when the Lord had asked him to come to his aid, to pray by his side. The Lord, remember, he was exceedingly sorrowful, uh, to the point of death. And he desired that, he just, that his disciples would just watch and pray with him. He was not able. Spurgeon would write in regards to Peter's hands being stretched out, drawing a sword, that it would have been better, far better, if Peter's hands had been clasped in prayer. The third reason why Peter should put away his sword was because this was the way the scriptures would be fulfilled. It was time for Jesus to fulfill the scriptures that were written of him. It was time for Christ to be led as a lamb to the slaughter, according to Isaiah 53, verse 7. You don't bring a whole entire army, a detachment of troops, to go get a lamb and bring them to the slaughter. It takes one person just to go get it and bring them in. It was time for him to fulfill the prophecies written of him in Psalms. Psalm chapter 22. And you know, some of these psalms, if you read in the Old Testament, if you were to, you know, just read them out loud, most people would think that you're reading from the New Testament because it is describing Jesus Christ so intimately and so detailed of what he would go through. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, book of Isaiah uh, chapter 53, Daniel chapter 9, Zechariah chapter 13, and, and so many others. Jesus Christ was completely yielded to fulfilling and following God's word. And that's why he said, put away that sword. And as I look at that, we too ought to be ones that are surrendered to the teaching of God's word. Completely yielded to it. Following it. Surrendered to it. Submitting to it. We need to read it. We need to know it. We need to understand it and follow it. Jesus sets for us a good example. I think, you know, with New Year's coming, a lot of times we make New Year's resolutions. Oftentimes it's not going to read the Bible in a year. And, and I want to encourage you and exhort you. You can do it. You know, uh, 
Even if you think that's too much to take on. You, there's so many websites out there, so many different Bible apps out there that you can pre-program so many different reading plans. You know, you can do it by subject or by topic. You can do Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms. You can do chronological. You can do, you can do it so many different ways. We just need to be in the Word. Okay? Submitted to it, following it, surrendered to it. Jesus here, he was completely sold out to it's time to fulfill the scriptures, to follow God's word. Let's wrap this up. Verse 55, 56, it says, In that hour Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. In these final verses of our text this morning, we see Jesus really just reiterate the fact that he was operating upon God's divine timeline. That he was in complete control of the situation. Many opportunities they had before to take him or to seize him, to arrest him, but they did not, they could not, for his hour had not yet come. But now it was upon him. Now it was time to permit them to take him. As verse 56 declares, all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And lastly, we see the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that Jesus had just earlier that night told them on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, told them that this was going to happen. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 had declared, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus told the disciples this would happen, and every single one of them, okay, every single one of them being led by Peter, declared that they would all die before denying the Lord, that they would never leave him. And yet, here Jesus is, just, just a few hours later, deserted by every one of his disciples. They abandoned him just as he said they would, you know what the amazing thing about that as we read uh, about their deserting the Lord? The amazing thing is for us as we look at it, we know that Jesus will restore each of these disciples and their departure will only be temporary. Christ will come to them again even in their moments of doubt, in their moments of weakness, and he will restore them. And maybe that's a word for you this morning. Perhaps you found yourself in a place where you've left the Lord or you've allowed yourself to wander from Him, here's the good news. The good news is that God can restore you. He can take you back. God still is in the restoration business today. Okay, Just as He restored those disciples, He can restore you. If you will turn from your ways and you will come to Him, He will be there welcoming you back with open arms. That's the picture of our, of our, of our Lord. And so if you found yourself in that place, I want to encourage you. It's not too late that you can come back and that he can restore you. Even if you've deserted him, he hasn't deserted you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And Lord, as we consider uh, just this portion of scripture, Lord, as we consider Judas's betrayal, Lord, it kind of is sickening to the stomach to imagine him doing what he did. Um, but Lord, we also know that at the very same time that it was all part of your plan. 
Lord, uh, there in the garden you prayed, you, you, the victory was won, and here you are fulfilling God's word, allowing the scriptures to come to pass, willingly being led away as, as a lamb is led to the slaughter. Lord, we thank you for your willingness to sacrifice for us. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much that you're willing and you were willing to do that for us to lay your life down for us. Lord, I thank you that uh, the story didn't end, doesn't end here with these guys deserting you, Lord, but that you restored each one of them. And Father, I pray, I pray that if there's any here, Lord, that, that they're not philos, they're etairos. They've been just kind of coming along for the ride. They want fire insurance. They just want what they can get out of this, Lord, that you'd prick their hearts, that you'd draw them into a relationship with you, that you would work in their hearts, just a, a work of restoration. Lord, bring them back to you. Lord, may our hearts always be to, to love you and to see your will done. Lord, use us, we ask, and we pray for your strength to honor you in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You all would stand with us as we close out our service.
thank everyone for coming. Uh, we'd love to see you here again next week for Bible study, for any of our functions. Just just come out and be blessed and spend time with us. And I uh, just thank you all. You're dismissed. <laughs>